varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Janet Winterson i samtal med Johan Hilton, Dagens Nyheter. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Such an honor to meet you, Janet Winterson. Thank you. Here to talk about your new novel, Tidsklyftan, The Gap of Time. Uh, a book you could call a modernization and a novelization of the Shakespeare play, A Winter's mm. Tale. Um, you call this book a cover. In which way is it a cover? All of life is a cover version. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're always retelling the same stories to ourselves and others. You know, we know that there are so many themes, so many relationships, so many dynamics, and continually we remake them from generation to generation, telling that story again and again. Uh, but the great thing about doing a cover version, just like you would if it was a rock song, mm -hmm. is that you can change the tempo, you can change the beat, you know, you can put extra things in there, you give it your own flavor, your own touch. The original is still the original, it's still beautiful and good, but you've done something different with it. And Shakespeare's fantastic basic material for cover versions. And you know, think of the great things that have, have come out of Shakespeare. You know, think of Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story. Mm -hmm. But West Side Story is always going to be West Side Story. You're not going to do a cover version of West Side Story, but you will do another cover version of Romeo and Juliet. And that's because the underlying material is so strong mm. that it can lend itself in this sort of elastic and mm. exuberant way to many readings. You know, you, I mean, you're a theatre guy, you know this. It's just, it seems like for 400 years we can keep staging this stuff mm -hmm. and keep finding new ways of representing mm. something that people know really well. Mm -hmm. Here in Sweden, I would say that that a winter's tale is not unknown, but it's one of his lesser known mm. uh, plays. It's mm. virtually never staged in, in Sweden. Uh, I think one of, of the latest and, and biggest productions was Ingmar Bergman's mm. uh, like 20 years ago or mm. something. Did uh, anybody see that? Yeah. yeah. Was it good? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's ha just his thing, isn't it? Uh -huh. That's a dark drama mm. and dead people. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I guess a lot of people in here ha haven't read it or said no. it. How would you describe A Winter's Tale? What, what is the mm. essence of the play? What mm. is it about? It's a very well-known story. You know, you read it in the newspapers, you hear it on the news every day. Some guy gets it into his head that his wife and his best friend are sleeping together and that the baby isn't really his. So what does he try and do? Because he's a guy, he thinks, well, I'll kill my best friend. Great. Uh, and then I'll do the same to my wife. Before you know it, she's got duct tape around her mouth, she's in the trunk of the car and they're heading towards the cliff. It's mm. all a disaster. Um, and it's the, it's the usual and a male rage and jealousy story. And Shakespeare's been here before. He's He's been here with Othello, if you think about it. Except with Othello, we see the outside malevolent agency of Iago goading Othello into saying, actually, your wife's a whore. She's sleeping with Cassio, who is Othello's best friend. So we've done this. We've, you know, we've had the two good male friends who have a, a woman in common, but we're married to one, and suddenly this jealous thing gets going. It's, but in the Winter's Tale, you know, it really is like Othello on speed. You know, it's like he's taking amphetamines. It just roars through. It's 
raw, it's brutal, it's pornographic, it's sadistic, that first act, mm. which is fantastic to stage. And then when Shakespeare's done all that and you get to the end and you think, oh God, you know, he, his mm. friends had to flee because he nearly killed him. He's just indicted his wife in a kangaroo court. She's fallen down, apparently dead. He's had the baby swept off to some foreign shore to be adopted because he thinks it's a bastard. Then what do you do? And that's why people don't stage it because the second act, which is the longest in Shakespeare, is all set in a kind of um, folksy pastoral where there's shepherds running around and making mm. daisy chains. You know, Almost bucolic. And yeah. shearing yeah. sheep. And you know, <laughs> that's not easy in the, inside the urban myth that we all live in. Mm. And so the challenge of that story is often thinking, you know, it's all fine to go through act one with jealousy, love, betrayal, pornography, blah. And then you get to act two and you think, fuck, what am I going to do? And, <laughs> And that was the same, really, for me, because you know, you as a theatre critic, in theatre, all we have is this stage, and everything that's going to happen is going to happen in our <laughs> conversation. It's our dialogue. Nothing else can happen. We don't have the luxury of the movies. We don't often have a soundtrack, even. And we don't have the interior space that the novel allows, that deep psychological space where things are not about dialogue between two people. So coming as a writer to what is essentially a drama, you know, to, to make a stage play into a novel, what you're doing is you're going into the backstories, into the cracks, mm -hmm. into the places that Shakespeare didn't bother with, mm -hmm. because drama has mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. demands, mm -hmm. different emphases um, to that of fiction. So in fiction, I was able to think, what has he missed out? Answer everything. Mm -hmm. We know about, you know, <laughs> it's true. It's the weirdest play. There's nobody's backstory. We do not know anything about anybody except everything that happens front of stage in this kind of in-your-face present right the way through. And I thought, okay, if I go into the back and I can find out who these people are, the dynamics of their soul, then I can make fiction out of it, which is what I did. But you're not only doing like the backstory. You also mm. take this story and you put it in modern time. Yeah. Uh, and more specifically, you put it in... In, in the London stock market. Yes. Why yes. did you put it there? Yes. Well, it had to be contemporary. That that mm. was important. Um, partly to get away from the shepherds and the mm. the, the flowers and. But 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 the, the publishers sheep. didn't make you make you to to make. No, it they were horrified no. enough that I was doing the Winter's Tale. <laughs> oh, oh no! Um, and because I was going to finish first, you know, they had the awful prospect of launching with mine. In, uh, and I think they thought, what? She's going to be a nightmare. And they kept saying, what are you going to do? And mm. I just kept saying, don't, don't worry, <laughs> no, it, it'll be there. So I wanted it to be contemporary because I thought that would speak to an audience mm. because I think it is a contemporary story, this business of, 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 of sexual jealousy, of, of trust, of friendship, you know, of male rage, mm. which we, we all know about, and of, of the patience of women and the ingenuity of women in sort of countering the male rage, of staving off you know, the, the devastating effects of all of that. Look, this is this is a really modern place to be, so it has to be contemporary. I didn't want kings. Who wants kings? Mm. Um, but I did need alpha males, okay? And I thought, all right, kings are alpha males. That's what they stand for. They stand for they stand for power, certain um, tyranny, autocracy, kind of recklessness. Mm. I can do what I like because I'm king of the heap. Mm. And I thought, well, that's bankers, mm. isn't it? I mean, they got us into this terrible mess in 2008 because they thought they were invincible mm. and that everybody else's life was just something to play with. It was up to them, and that's the kind of feel that you get with this. This is just a guy who doesn't have any limits and thinks that he can order the world. Um, and, and part of his lesson is that he cannot 
order the mm. world because these are not fantasies of his imagination. These are real people mm -hmm. who hurt and mm. bleed and mm. die and mm. suffer. Mm. And you know, sometimes it's that disconnect in the mm. modern world, mm. isn't it, which mm. is so terrifying. Mm. You know, we, we go to war with drones. We just think we think everything is somehow sanitized and out there. Uh, you know, we see it on the TV news and we think it's not us, mm. but it is us. Mm. Mm. But because uh, the, the royals, the, um, you don't only you know, exchange uh, royals with with financiers, all, mm. or, all, uh, also with uh, pop stars, uh, yeah. game developers yeah. and, and creators. Well, there's more songs uh, in The Winter's Tale than in any mm. other of Shakespeare's plays. So it was a question of thinking, how can I honour the substance of the mm. play um, and the spirit of the play mm. without necessarily having to do some slavish retelling? Mm -hmm. or simple? I didn't want that, and mm. Shakespeare wouldn't mm. have respected mm. that. You know, he, he was a pirate. He was always ripping stuff off from everybody mm -hmm. else, just saying, I'll have that. He just assemble body parts, mm. you know, make them mm. into something new. Mm. Um, and I thought, it doesn't matter what I do, you know, because it's in the spirit of Shakespeare. But the singing, I thought, I've got to get that in. So I decided that I would make Hermione in The Winter's Tale, who was the queen, into a singer called Mimi, mm. um, so that we could get that sense through of, of, of music. Mm. And I wanted Leo's friend, Leontes' friend, Polixenes, to be a video games designer. Mm. Yeah. I needed him to be a bit more bohemian, creative, mm. a bit softer, a mm. bit more reflective, mm. because that's the character of the guy in the mm. play. Um, he's, you know, they're, they're not the same person. They, 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 they're quite opposed in their temperaments. Mm. So I had to bring that through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, uh, as you said, there are several weird things going on in mm. A Winter's Tale. Uh, one of the weirdest is that time Mm. suddenly appears mm. as a character of mm. the play, mm. in person. Yep. He, he holds a monologue and he turns the time, uh, the clock forward, yeah. 16 years. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I mean, time actually just does come on. <laughs> you know, just uh. this, is, this is after the interval, right? I'm time. And I'm holding here an hourglass because the, the Elizabethans loved a symbol. So here is an hourglass. So you, can all, you all think, oh, look, there's time. <laughs> and then I say to you, well, while you were out getting a drink and Having, going to the toilet, 16 mm. years have passed. And you think, oh, well, I didn't know that. Mm. Um, and in fact, there's, there's more to this. Than, I'm going to bring in a bit here about Shakespeare's theatre because it's actually quite mm -hmm. interesting. Because in the, on the, in the, for the Elizabethan theatre, in the beginning, there were no intervals at all. Why? Because there was also no electricity and theatres did not have roofs. So when Shakespeare started writing for the Globe in London, right, plays happened in the afternoon. If it was summertime, they started at three o'clock because there was more light. If it was wintertime, they started at two o'clock. That's why we have the idea of the matinee now. It comes from the original time when the theatre was. Um, so no roof. So you really need to get through the play. Um, all Shakespeare's plays are between 2,200 and 2,000 500 lines because he was he thought we've got to finish um, and it's later when they start putting a roof on the theatre which is Blackfriars the first theatre in London with a roof that they realize that you can have an interval so you because you got a bit more time and this is the world's first advertising break now Shakespeare was always an owner in the theatres as well as the writer he was an actor manager and he's an entrepreneur you know he's a guy who wants to make money he thought this is great we can sell stuff so the intervals became important and he revised quite a lot of his early work and put intervals in, mm. although The Winter's Tale, being a late play, was written with an interval. And so we've had this kind of roar through of Act One and everybody's going, oh, it's a catastrophe. And then they all go and buy stuff. 
and then they come back. And he needs to say, listen, it's taken no time at all to destroy the world, because this is a theme of Shakespeare in the later plays. Now I'm going to show you how long it takes to start to heal a world, mm. to restore mm. a world. Mm. And the answer is 16 years. Mm. Um, and that is the amount of time since we last saw this poor baby abandoned on the shores of Bohemia in a great storm with Shakespeare's mm. favorite, best known line, exit pursued by a bear. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, because they had a bear at the time and that's why everybody thought they'd get, they, you know, they'd get one. Because Shakespeare really, you know, he, he would use anything to get people into the theater. So they had it advertised as bear, but there was no bear. <laughs> anyway, so they all come back in. She's been whisked away, last thing. Poor babe, off we go, we look after her. You've got a couple of shepherds, you know, they've got no money. Um, she's an illegal immigrant, but, you know, they're not saying, where's the paperwork? Um, we can't take you, go back to Calais. They're saying, okay, this is a little child that needs some help and we're gonna take her in. And Shakespeare sets that against um, the, the, sort of the cruelties and the abandonments of this rich world of the city against these people who really don't have very much, but they see a child in mm. need and they say, we'll look after her. Mm. And then 16 years later, lo and behold, she's grown up and the play is beginning to move forward again because it's been locked. That 16 years have left us in a, in a, in a locked space where nothing could happen because all we've had is, is disaster and revenge. And the play needs to move again in time because Shakespeare was obsessed with mm. time by now. But time is also an important component of, of your novel, obviously, yeah. because of the title. But, but mm. uh, why, why was it so exciting exploring time in, in, this, in this format? I'm, I'm fascinated by time. I don't know what it is. Mm. Um, it, it, it feels arbitrary and, and a, a construct. I mean, there is biological time mm. because we, feel we live through that in our bodies and in the seasons and in the changing world. But most of us very often have the idea that uh, the clock and the calendar are, are not real indicators or barometers of how time happens to mm. us. Um, memory never works like that, does it? You never remember things sequentially. You don't go back to a year and remember everything in order. You remember things across time and separated by years. Mm. It's things that happen according to emotional significance, mm. isn't it? Which is what art is so very good at. You know, it's, um, putting things side by side that don't belong chronologically or sequentially, um, but are this, str this, this strange movement that happens always in our heads. Mm. I mean, none of us lives only in this present with the, with the clock going past now. We're always thinking about something that has happened. Mm. We're always imagining something that will happen. So we simultaneously inhabit three layers of time without even thinking about it. Um, and anybody who gets older, as we all must, has this curious sensation of, 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 of the body changing and actually very often the mind becoming more open, more flexible, more free, mm. as though it's not caught, mm. not bound. And the Elizabethans love this because mm. they didn't live very long. I mean, Shakespeare was dead at 53. Mm. I mean, imagine that. Nobody's worried about this, that's normal. You have to imagine a world where you know you're gonna be dead in your 50s. Mm. How does that affect you? Mm. How does it affect the way that you live, the way that you plan what you want to achieve? Mm -hmm. um, and London then was a young city. Half the population of London, when Shakespeare was writing, was aged under 20. So it's reckless, it's, it's risk-taking, it's loud, it's noisy. You know, there's nothing uh, dignified or middle-class about going to the theatre or writing for the theatre. Yeah. Everybody used mm -hmm. to come. You know, um, 
the Globe sat 3,300 people. Think of the size of that. You know, this, this is just, this is, this is democracy gone mad. And it didn't matter whether you were rich, poor, or whatever. Whatever you, if you could get in there and just stand up, you know, the theatre's arranged with the tiers. You've seen these pictures. But the front is a great big mosh pit. Yeah. And everybody's just pushing forward. And they're coming because their own lives are so short that time that happens in the theatre is a way of expanding your own life, of living things that you cannot live, seeing things that you cannot see. So art becomes essential. And it's not just a bolt-on, it's not a leisure activity, it's a way of living more life and of cheating time. The idea of the Grim Reaper coming and sweeping you away, everybody knew that plague, wars, just the general mess-up of living in the Elizabethan age. But you could expand the beats, the moment. So I'm fascinated by that, you know, how we approach time. I think you know, we, we're quite lazy and we, we misuse our time now. Because Is that why so many in this book tries to stop the time yeah. in some way or the other, or rest mm. in it? Yes, mm. it is. And it's, it's, it's also trying to give the sense of how long it takes for an individual to come to terms with their own past. Mm -hmm. um, the past is something which is always in front of you. Uh, you. You can never escape it. You can't put things behind you. Mm. You can't get over it. Um, it, it you know, that's what I mean about as living in a kind of continuity of time. It's not gone. Um, you know, there's a, there's a great phrase in psychoanalysis where they talk about the old present. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the past at all that's still affecting mm -hmm. us, and we all know about that. So it's living with this reality of time, not, not as having disappeared ever, but being always around us, uh, that Shakespeare understood, that art understood. And it's something that I've worked with right from the beginning. So a chance here to work directly with it was too good to miss. Mm. And the phrase, the gap of time, mm. comes in the mm. play mm. twice. Mm. Another interesting thing you wrote, you, you, you wrote when, when um, uh, you participated in, in the Swedish newspaper Dagens Nyheter, mm. uh, uh, our tribute mm. issue to, to Shakespeare. In that piece... <laughs> the tribute band to Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that piece, you wrote that the time we live in is crazy yeah. and that we, in just a moment's time, destroy thousands of years of human experience mm. and culture, as in Aleppo or Syria. Uh, w would you like to elaborate that uh, a bit? Mm. Yeah, it's the, it's it's this recklessness. I mean, just as in Act One, Leontes takes no time at all mm -hmm. to destroy mm -hmm. everything. His relationships, uh, he thinks his wife's dead, he's lost his best friend, nobody will speak to him anymore, the whole kingdom thinks he's a tyrant. It's so easy. You know, you've destroyed the whole thing in a few moments. Um, and then what do you do? It's all got to be put back. Mm. And it's this it's this sense now of the, the utter wastefulness of the human race at the moment that we're prepared to destroy so much and what do we think we're going to do when we have to start rebuilding all this shit? I mean, it's not going to be easy. And you can't put back a thousand years. You know, when, when, when I look at, at Syria and what's been destroyed in Afghanistan, it's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, that, that was us. That was our past. That was our history, all of us, which we, we, we've just uh, allowed to go. Um, and again, you know, it feels now, uh, when, we, when we cusped into the 21st century, things were looking really optimistic, weren't they? I mean, who thought that we'd be in faith wars mm -hmm. and all this hatred and destruction now? It's as though you know, we, the whole planet's trying to commit suicide. Mm. And I think it takes a collective effort away from despair to say, we really do have to fix this. And the, you know, the answer is not to go on the fault lines of, of, of right and left and bigotry and hatred. 
mm. and closing the borders, closing mm. the doors. Mm. I mean, that's not going to work, is it? I mean, you, on the one hand, you can't have a global marketplace on the one hand and free movement of capital, and at the same time say, but we can't have free movement of people. I mean, it does astonish mm. me mm. that when mm. it's money, it's investment. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, and we welcome it, and when it's people, it's immigration, and they've got to get out. I mean, every country now belongs to somebody else. Mm. You know, my own mm. ridiculous country, Britain, we've sold everything to somebody else. Mm. You know, the, the UKIP and all these idiots banging on about how, you know, Britain <laughs> for the British, that's so over. We don't own anything. It belongs to China, it belongs to Russia, it belongs mm. to Saudi mm. Arabia. Mm. You look at who owns us, and we, mm. we're completely owned by other countries. Uh, so what is the problem with having people? Mm. But it's, in, it, it, it's this ugly sleight of hand that we do in order to make people hate each other instead of looking at the powers and saying, actually, this is the, you know, it's the bigger picture that's wrong. So I've, I'm interested in I'm interested in where we look. I don't think writers should be outside of life. I think we have a duty to be in life, you know, in politics, in the fight, mm. in the moment, and use art, mm. not as a kind of Soviet propaganda no. machine. But, but what does that mean? Uh, it means, uh, how can you... Look, everything happens inside somebody's head, doesn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, that's what The Winter's Tale is about. Mm -hmm. um, Leontes has no factual basis for believing that his wife is sleeping with his best friend. And in fact, it's very clear he isn't, mm -hmm. and she isn't, and the no. baby <laughs> is his. So it's all a complete fantasy but once he gets it into his head mm. he would rather murder the world than have to change his mind mm. and we know that guy <laughs> um, and there's plenty of them out there you know because everything starts as an idea in somebody's head whether it's the great the good the beautiful mm. ideas um, that we have in our world or whether it's these destructive and baleful um, ideologies mm. that are wrecking us it's all inside people's heads and what else does art do except get inside your head and try and change the way that you think mm. um, to, to, to stop you reading things in one one, one blinkered and particular way Way. You know, art's always about multiple narratives, about mm. stories that come mm. together mm. and collide. Mm. It's never about one version. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's the many voices. It is the Tower mm. of Babel. Mm. It's everything. It's the richness of it. Mm. Um, and that's why it's so crucial, um, because it's, it's, not, it's not a leisure activity. It's a way of understanding the world mm. and understanding us all as part of the human project. Seems to me to be why it's so necessary. Mm. That, that, that aspect of, of Leontes is very interesting, I, uh, I would say, because uh, both your book and, and the, the Shakespeare play mm. uh, could be read as, as stories about uh, a culture of, of, of uh, male, uh, male uh, culture of honour in, mm. in some mm. way or the other, uh, uh, a fear about f of, of female sexuality. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, yeah, I think, I think he's terrified of mm. it. Um, but it does come right, actually, through the agency of women, which is something that really only happens uh, consistently towards the end of Shakespeare's mm -hmm. life. Uh, those late plays are very odd, and they do change. And he, he really has got tired of, of, of seeing his women die in the mm -hmm. fallout of the mm -hmm. hero's soul. Mm -hmm. You know how in Puccini it's always death by opera? Mm. Um, <laughs> And you know, there's only one, isn't there? Girl of the Golden West, Fanchula Del West, where everything works out for Mimi. And she's, she's got one woman and about 200 men in it, the cowboy opera. Um, and, and certainly, you know, with, with, with Shakespeare, there's, it, it, it's, been, it's been so terrible. And then it's, it's as though when he gets to King Lear and you, you, you have that moment when Lear comes on stage with Cordelia in his arms and says, why should a dog, a rat, mm have life and thou, no breath at all. 
And you think, is Shakespeare asking himself this? Because after that, the women start staying alive. Mm. And at the end... Is that the turning point, you would say, uh, in, in Shakespeare's it's dramas? The, it's the moment when, yeah, it is really. It's, it's Cordelia is... Uh, it's almost as if Shakespeare loves Cordelia. He doesn't want her to die, but he can't help no. it. And then he thinks, I'm not doing this anymore. No. And at the end of The Winter's Tale, you've got three women and three generations of women, Hermione, the wife, Perdita, the lost child, and Paulina, who's a kind of you know, feisty, ballsy matron who stands up to Leontes and just says, you know, you were out of your mind. Mm. And he's always trying mm. to throw her in boiling oil and whatever, it mm. never works. Mm. Um, so you've got the three of them who just refuse it and come together in this beautiful, magical, strange, sort of supernatural final act. She's also why people can't handle it, because there is by then this element um, of the magical in Shakespeare, mm -hmm. which he doesn't bother to apologize for, mm -hmm. and he doesn't bother mm -hmm. to explain. Mm -hmm. You just take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, a very, it's very hard, that final act for people, but it's also very beautiful, because the women are there center stage, and, and they have literally redeemed the play. And then when you get to the last play, The Tempest, which is really, you know, Shakespeare's also obsessed with father-daughter mm. relationships. You know, we've seen them in Lear, we've seen them now in The Winter's Tale, we're going to see them again in, in, in with Prospero and Miranda in The Tempest, where there's just the two of them on mm. the island. That's the most claustrophobic father-daughter relationship <laughs> that you can have. I mean, if you don't count a kind of monster and a spirit, uh, it's just the two of them. Um, and then, of course, Ferdinand comes along and he knows that she's going to get married. And there's a moment where he's about succumb to the usual male rage. Mm -hmm. I mean, Prospero mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. you know, has these kind of, again, pornographic imaginings of Ferdinand sleeping with his daughter. Of course he's going to sleep mm -hmm. with his daughter, so you do when you get married, uh, and that it's all going to end. And then he restrains himself, and it's as though, at last, one of the women has a father finally worth being born for. Mm -hmm. And the whole of the future rests on this really this young woman it's the end of Shakespeare's life and she's going to go forward um, birth begins again life begins again um, mm. through, through this this, mm. fe this female experience it's fantastic and you think what was happening in your head Shakespeare um, not because mm. I think you can understand imagination through autobiography I don't think that I don't but I do think that the the atom smasher of a writer's mind is where autobiography and imagination collide. Mm. And there's always, some, there's always something there that you can find. And there's no question Shakespeare was obsessed with father-daughter relationships. Mm. I mean, it starts with Romeo and Juliet, doesn't it? You look right back at one of those early plays, the most famous love story in the world. The whole problem is that Juliet's father will not, doesn't listen to her, no. not interested in the fact that she loves Romeo, and says, no, you're going to marry Paris. I know he's horrible, but you're marrying him. Now, and the whole trouble begins. And then you've got the, you know, the dreadful, vile taming of the shrew. Um, where you know, there she is, she's got to marry Petruchio. She doesn't want to, but her father says she has to. So fathers are really bad for daughters in mm. Shakespeare. And it's almost as though he's kind of beating himself up time after time, thinking, because mm. he has daughters, thinking, I am a bad father. Mm. And then maybe he becomes a better one. Mm. But w why did you call his later plays odd? Uh, you used that word a couple of minutes ago. Because they're almost, they, it's almost as though he can't be bothered to write them down. And that's, In which way? that's why they're hard to stage. Yeah. It's 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 become a kind of private conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the ultimate showman. He's a theatre mm -hmm. writer. All of his life has been outward facing or customer facing, or whatever they call it now. Mm -hmm. um, he stands here and he looks at you, and he has to please you, or you won't come again. Uh, and he knows that. But towards the end, it's as there there is and 
Some, there is something there which is is private. It's it's rather as though a man at the end of his life is talking to himself about that journey and mm. what he's achieved, um, and that does make them difficult. You know that the the sort of high drama of of either the tragedies or the comedies mm. or the history plays has been replaced by something which is approaching much more closely the interiority mm. of the novel, mm. Mm. Um, and which, which is about these internal spaces. Mm. Uh, and even with something like The Winter Tale, where you get the old flair in those first acts of murder and, mm. and tragedy, and he fin he's finished that, he can't be bothered. He's not going to do that. He won't finish the play properly mm. in that spirit. We have to work with him mm. and fill in the gaps, those gaps of mm. time mm. Um, that, the, 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 that are present. And so in a way, maybe, uh, it's better to find new forms for these late plays than simply to stage them, because mm -hmm. in some ways they are unstaged. Which way, like novelised? Yeah, them, for, because for yeah, or you know, film them. You know, they, because they are unstageable in in the satisfactory sense mm. of what it means to make a, a drama mm. for mm. the stage. Because uh, a Winter's Tale feels oddly modern, I would say, in in, yeah. in, in several aspects. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, not the shepherds and the no, no, sheep but, but the male rage and the the jealousy yeah, and the control does. and and yeah. it's almost. You know, there yeah. is a feminist touch of it. Of yeah. In some yeah. Hmm. And there's the scary bit when Perdita finally comes back to the court 16 years later. And in, uh, and this is very clear in the play. Leontes thinks he might like to sleep with her. Hmm. Um, hmm. And he says, well, you know, I might have you for myself. And you think, whoop. You know, this is like Donald Trump saying, you know, she weren't yeah, yeah. my daughter. I'd be dating her. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, God, President Trump. Never mind, we won't go there. Um, <laughs> And so Shakespeare isn't afraid of confronting those things, which you know, mm. which are very uncomfortable mm. uh, in the father-daughter mm. relationship. And mm. of course, Leontes hasn't had a relationship with his daughter, and he's now going to have to find one. And it certainly mm. can't be a sexual one, mm. which is the first thing that crosses his mind. Because she's very beautiful, and mm. she reminds mm. him, of course, mm. of, of his, his wife, who he thinks is dead, but she isn't dead because she's about to step down as a statue. But you've also written that that uh, the late Shakespeare plays. Uh, are about one thing, and that's forgiveness. Yeah, they are. Uh. Mm, they are. Um, forgiveness is essential in those late plays. And I, again, I think it's, it's somebody who's been on a long journey and mm. realises that forgiveness is necessary. We all have that, don't we? As we get older, we need forgiveness because mm. we are aware of, of how much wrong we've done mm. in our life. Um, we all need forgiveness. And we also need to be able to forgive others, mm. you know, so that we're not caught in some endless Greek tragedy, which Shakespeare was very aware of, because those are the, the Greek tragedies are the basis of all Elizabethan drama. You know, the Greek tragedies are endlessly repeating the curse of the house of Atreus. Mm. The thing goes on generation to generation. It doesn't break. You think you've got away, but you haven't. Mm. You know, it's all going to come back and get you. Why? Because the Greeks didn't do forgiveness. They did revenge and they did tragedy, but they didn't do forgiveness. <laughs> and that comes in, that comes in, it is a Christian concept, mm. um, as Shakespeare knew it. And he brings it forward into his plays as something that has to happen, as the only possible redemption for the awful situation that's left lying on stage, mm. so that you can move forward into love and into a future. Because if you can't forgive, um, there's really nowhere to go. All you can do is, is die full of hatred, and the next generation, as we see now with terrorism, will just mm. grow up full of hatred and carry the whole thing on. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, everybody has to just get so tired of being dead 
<laughs> and having their world blown up, that they come to an uneasy truce, but it doesn't really no. solve anything. And Hermione turns into a statue standing for 16 years just to forgive in the end. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, what we really think is that Paulina hid her away because mm. when she was mm. a, apparently dead mm. um, and whisked off, uh, I think, it, it's again, it's about mm. women mm. being able to mm. keep secrets for a long time. Mm. Paulina spends the next 16 years telling Leontes mm. um, uh, what an idiot he's been, mm. but she doesn't say, actually, your wife is still alive no. and she's in my mm. garden. <laughs> but she presents her as a statue in, in yes, the Yes, it's marvellous, yeah, yeah yes. because Perdita's back. He thinks, oh, I've got my daughter, if only I had my wife. And, uh, and Paulina says, well, actually, I do have a statue of your <laughs> wife, which is very lifelike would you like to come and look at it <laughs> and they all do and it's marvelous and he thinks you know god it, it seems to be breathing it's it seems to be warm and and then she says i could do more i could make this statue step down and take you by the hand mm. and but she says you know i'm not a witch and he says well if this be magic let it be an art lawful as eating um, now, Shakespeare was up to something there, because by now we're in 1611 and uh, the old Queen Elizabeth is dead. She died in 1603, uh, a, you know, a long and successful reign, and James I is on the throne. Um, now, the first thing that James I did when he became King of England in 1604, the very first thing, right, was to pass the Witchcraft Act. It is an offence punishable by death mm. to conjure a spirit. Um, and this is the time of the witch hunts. This is when it really kicks off. You know, James had a very bad relationship with his mother. He doesn't like women. It's all going to go horribly wrong. Um, and the, 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 the powerful woman, uh, the wise woman, the healer woman, is going to now become particularly suspect, especially also because he's got to get rid of the image of Gloriana, the great queen. He's just fed up of everybody saying, you know, what a great queen she was. So it's just no good. So you then get this, this both the deep misogyny and the terror of witchcraft in the reign of James I. Shakespeare is very aware of this. So to put something like that in, in this play, is highly political. Mm. And it's risky, mm. Mm. Um, because what mm. he's doing on stage is what is uh, explicitly by law forbidden and punishable mm. by mm. death. Mm. Uh, and he's doing it. Mm. So he's really saying, in, in, it, it, it's a challenge. It's almost it's throwing mm. down a gauntlet, literally, and saying, you, you really believe this rubbish that mm. you spout? Uh, and so we're seeing a magical act take place. And that's what I mean about writers being involved in the moment, in the political moment. Mm -hmm. We forget that, or we don't know it. Mm. But it, for them, mm. it was real. The audience would be going... <laughs> mm. <laughs> but being in the moment, uh, uh, it, it, another thing that is also about to collapse in, mm. in the gap of time, except, you know, all the men, uh, is uh, the capitalist system in yeah. some way or the other. Uh, in the streets of London, major uh, manifestations mm. in, in a kind of Occupy Wall Street manner mm. Uh, mm. takes place. Uh, Leo, uh, yeah. the, the, um, uh, the main character, even wears a T-shirt with the statement, I am the one percent. Yeah, because he's an uh, ass. Yeah, 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 yes. Which alludes to the fact that one percent owns yeah. 99 percent yeah. of, of the Earth's uh, resources. Uh, how come you, you involve this uh, theme in your novel? Um. Because it's 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 the theme of our world, and you know again you know because I think it was legitimate because we're dealing with somebody in, in the play who has all the resources mm -hmm. and therefore can dictate to others how their lives are going to be, and um, because in the second part we go to a place where there are no resources, it's mm -hmm. poor, it's a poor country, mm -hmm. and they haven't got any money, um, but they're you know they're having a, a good time. Um, until you know the usual things come back in to try and destroy them because capitalism can't leave anything alone you know if there's any any spot in the world that's happy it will soon not be <laughs> <laughs> um 
-hmm. You know, there's a bit in the in in the book where you know Perdita and, and and her boyfriend Zell think that they might just opt out and live differently, and this uh, a guy comes along and says, "Yeah, but you know, you'll go and then you you know, you'll go and live on an island and grow lettuce, and soon there'll be a private jet flying in to harvest the exclusive lettuce, make the whole place into a spa, mm. you know, because there's no way you can go where they won't find you if you've done something beautiful and good, you know, they will monetize it, and I, I wanted to show this this kind of the relentless all-you-can-eat capitalism mm -hmm. that won't leave anything alone because you know, that's our world and it's 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 self-destructive. Mm. So you know, one, once you've decided on a world as a writer, the only thing you've got to do is stick with it um, and, and create something which which is authentic. Mm. People will go on any journey with you as as long as um, they believe what you're telling them, mm. and that's my job. It's to make a world mm. that's real enough but is also fanciful enough for me to mm. do what I like mm. in there. <laughs> you know, I've got angels mm. in it, haven't I? But, but, but yes, you do. But it also kind of uh, underlines the apocalyptic atmosphere of the yeah. book, I would say. Something has to go. Yeah. Uh, something has to end for, for, yeah. for another thing to, to, to yeah. you know, starting its place. Yes, yes. And I don't think anybody thinks this system is sustainable for very much longer. Mm. You know, when I read the Financial Times every week, when the Financial Times starts to sound like some socialist Marxist tract about the <laughs> imminent doom of capitalism, you know we're in yeah. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Are you involved in, in this kind of grassroots movements? In no, any way? I'm not. I mean, I, when Occupy was happening, I used to go down there because it was near my, my place in London. Um, and that will always get my support. You know, I think I think you have to. If there's a demonstration, you have to be on it if you believe mm. in it. Mm. And you have to work out where you put your money. You know, it's, it's about being con conscious, I think, mm. which as a writer, you have to be. I mean, I think creativity makes you conscious. Mm. But how do you live your life so that you know that you're not mindlessly putting your money into things actually which you despise or which do mm. harm? Mm. You know, so if you have investments, mm. where's that money mm. going? Trace it back, don't just give it to mm. some manager or stockbroker to stick somewhere that you know there's gonna I don't want to make money out of other people's misery that's my bottom line and it's very simple then um, and I think you know you don't have to play by anybody else's rules but you do have to play by your own so you have to make some rules for yourself and then stick with them mm. and it doesn't make you virtuous good holy special it just means okay if I want a particular world everything I do has mm. to work mm. towards mm. that mm. and not hamper it mm. so I don't want just mm. to be paying lip service to mm. something and I want everything that I am, uh, the food I eat, the money I spend, the work that I do, to be going in the direction I believe in and not leaking out into stuff. You know, capitalism depends on us not noticing, being mindless, giving it to somebody else to manage. You know, every time an individual takes back control, then that is a small defeat to the system. And also competitive, I think. I, no. <laughs> Uh, so you're in Sweden, so we're all defeating the system. <laughs> but as a competitive, uh, Leo in, in, in the book is, uh, is a financier, he works with, uh, has this hedge fund. Yeah. Uh, hedgehog fund. Uh, hedge fund. He's not what's a hedgehog the, fund. <laughs> what's the name? <laughs> I love that. Let's, let's, all, call, get, let's call, call it gorgeous. a hedgehog fund. Let's all go and get hedgehog funds. <laughs> it's a better word. Save the planet. It? Where's Greenpeace <laughs> when you need them? Right, from tonight, yeah. Sweden, okay. Get your sovereign wealth and put it in a hedgehog fund. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever. His idea. is uh, linked to this capitalist uh, culture. Yeah. In, in, uh, how, how much is like uh, uh, capitalism a patriarchal uh, problem, would you say? I didn't listen to that because I was still laughing. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> do it again. Uh, capitalism <laughs> as a patriarchal yeah. culture. Yeah. Well, it is simply because mm. you know it's, it's built on a time when uh, men had the power, and unfortunately, what feminism hasn't done yet is overturn the systems. You know, we've gone inside them to some extent, yeah. but we haven't really changed them. No. You know, it's still a macho culture of long hours. It's anti-family. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not. It's not been creative about job sharing, and you know, partly because I think you know there's, there's this culture of work and long hours, which is somehow seen to be really important and shows you're doing something, as though motherhood isn't like the 24/7 longest hour work culture mm. that anybody can ever do. Mm. I mean, you never get a day off if you're a mother, do you? Um, so it, it's really about how you change the system from uh, from the inside, and unfortunately. Um, a lot of the women who are on the inside are really like another character of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. <laughs> in, I mean, terrifying, <laughs> or Goneril and Regan. <laughs> you know, there's this sort of really hyenas in lipstick. <laughs> um, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was one who just are happy to have the system <laughs> just as it is and to be exceptions in it and don't want <laughs> it to change. Um, and unfortunately, there are, there are quite a few of those. So I don't know, look, I don't know how we do it. Sweden is very far ahead in, in most Western developed countries with feminism and an, an agenda for feminism, mm -hmm. seeing that it's actually part of the whole picture mm -hmm. and not something you do when you've got time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, re that's really great. You know, you're, it was, I was really impressed when your foreign minister took on Saudi Arabia and said, this is not a suitable way to treat women. Mm -hmm. And there we are in Britain going, <gasps> you can't mm -hmm. say that, we need to sell them weapons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't matter that women can't drive or travel or go out or do anything and they have to wear a uniform with only their eyes showing. It's fine because we need to sell weapons. You know, if, if, if this was about any other group, it was about black people or Jews, you know, we'd be up in arms saying, you know, you can't drive, you can't go out without permission. You're a woman, so just, you know, get with the programme. So it's brilliant that Sweden has been able to take that on and to get, you know, give out books in schools, you know, why everybody should be a feminist. It's fantastic because... Now, that is, we're all in, we are in that sense all in mm. it together, men and women alike, 50-50 in the world. And until it's a truly shared planet and a shared economy, I don't think we will see much change. But why isn't it like that in, in, in Britain, for example? Well, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, we have a terrible government, mm -hmm. yeah, um, which, which is in just a number of boys who all went to the same school. Mm. And they just, they don't understand anything. Right. <laughs> Not At anything <laughs> about about women, about social justice, about the welfare state, even about the economy. Um, <laughs> so we're in, you know, we're in, we're in a mess, and you know mm. we're in a mess. I mean, look, we're voting to leave the European Union. How stupid are we? Mm. We won't go there. We'll be here no, all night. No. 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 Mm. no. No. Uh, let's change the subject uh, because in the end. But it is a feminist play. Yeah, yes, yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, you know, yeah. because it's, so those women are active in it. Mm, you mm. know, you know, it's not a version of the, that Western Jane got a gun. You know, with Natalie Portman, oh. where feminism seems to equal a, a woman is in the movie. Um, that's that's it's, it's a sort of astonishing new reading of what feminist means. Well, there's a woman in it, so it must be feminist, because <laughs> <laughs> there weren't any women in before. Um, so I think it's you know it, it 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 will change, and I hope the new generation will change it. You know, I have great optimism always for for young people because I think no matter how wrong we get it, you know, generations above me get it, there's always a chance, isn't there, mm -hmm. that they'll see it differently, do it differently. And we have to believe in the future like that and empower the young in that way. Um, and believe in them, trust them. You know, they, they are the next thing to happen. Mm.
Uh, in Gap of Time, you write beautifully about Shakespeare and, and what Shakespeare has meant to you, uh, uh, both as a writer, but mm. also as a person. Um, uh, and you also write that uh, The Winter's Tale is a drama that has followed you for 30 years. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm now so old, it's 40. 40 years, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 40 mm. years, yeah. Could you please tell us a bit about <laughs> that? How, how did you do... How was your first meeting with Shakespeare? Um, well, I was 16, which was interesting for me because Perdita is 16 when we meet her again. So it was that typically narcissistic teenage moment when it's all about me, mm. which you need when you're a teenager, um, because you need to believe for a while that you're the centre of the world, you know, in, in order to be glad that you're not later. Um, and... <laughs> It's true, some people, that never that moment never comes, but <laughs> that's arrested development. But we, <laughs> we Donald Trump, for instance. <laughs> Vladimir Putin. I mean, on we go. It's such a mess out there. They've all got arrested development because we don't teach emotional intelligence in schools. That's a whole problem. Um, so anyway, we won't get into that either. So there I am. So I'm adopted, right? So that's uh, that's one failed family. Um, and adoption always it always makes you think it's your fault. And and then the second family was failing uh, because I was brought up very religious, as many of you know. And, and one of the rules in our house was not just no sex, but no sex with your own sex. So things had gone wrong. And I was, I was, I'd been thrown out. I was living in a mini, uh, a little mini, you know, one like they had in the 60s. And um, ov obviously that was, a, that, that was a setback for me. And I was feeling a little bit insecure. And the only thing I could think of to do was to just go on reading. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a great library in Accrington. It's about to close. But in a you know, proper old-fashioned library um, funded by the, the, the steel millionaire Andrew Carnegie, Scottish man who then went mm -hmm. to America, founded libraries all over the world, but particularly in England and America. Uh, and it had great big stone reliefs around it of Shakespeare and Dante and Chaucer, which is very impressive in this mm -hmm. northern working class town. And Everybody read Shakespeare because um, you just did. It was the point where the working classes were meant to better themselves mm -hmm. by reading, th uplifting and improving things like Shakespeare. Um, so they did, and so I did. And I didn't know The Winter's Tale was a difficult play or a late play. I liked the title, and I thought... But it was it the first you picked? The first play you picked? No, because, no. you know, at school we did, we did a couple of history plays and everybody had done Romeo and Juliet, but I was just mm -hmm. flicking through, mm -hmm. you know, like you do, because it's a big book, so you can't move once <laughs> you've got it. Um, so you tend to sit there a while. Mm. You know, it's good when books were heavy, because kids couldn't get away from out from underneath <laughs> them. You know, that's the problem with Kindle. It's just too easy to go and do something else. And you've got this thing plonked down, you're stuck. Um, so I was stuck under this large copy of Shakespeare, because I'm not very big, and uh, going through it and I thought the winter's tale I thought oh, that might be a ghost story or something Simon's it's a good uh, title isn't it yeah. um, I thought I'll read that and I soon realized that you know at the shining center of it was this abandoned child Perdita who then re reappears at 16 um, and, and and so I bonded with the play and I thought all right you know there's always there's always a second act a third act a fourth act you know you the the, the drama goes forward it's not stuck and it it was kind of an enlightening moment to me because I didn't want to be stuck and I didn't want to have my own personal groundhog day where everything would be the same again mm. and again mm. and I had nothing mm. to to it look forward to or escape to. 
And, and so this gave me hope. Uh, and I stowed it away inside myself where I put everything that was important so that my mother couldn't find it and destroy it. Mm. So it was stowed away inside me. And I kept it with me. And then every so often it would reappear in various guises in, in the work and in the life. Because we do that, don't we? Mm. You know, we ha they are talismanic texts. Mm. They're things that we keep. These are our private worlds that no one... You know, when you meet somebody new, especially if you want to sleep with them or something, you're always sharing your favourite book or music or movie, aren't you? Mm. Um, it's something precious from inside you mm. that you want to give this new person in your life. And it's a very bonding moment. And so the winter's tale was in there for me. Mm. You, you, you've called this your first meeting with, with, with um, uh, Shakespeare as f um, feeling like a, a foundling in an enchanted forest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think th th there is, a, you know, there, well, there are all those fairy stories, woodland stories, and they're always in woods, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Where there's always some abandoned kid and all they can do is keep walking through the woods mm -hmm. hoping that something will happen. And of course, something always does. Um, you know, you always meet some goblin or some talking animal, um, or there's a castle far away with mm -hmm. fancy lights, uh, or, or suddenly, you know, a meal appears out of nowhere. But I like those stories because, they, they, you know, they are about the unexpected and they're also about going forward in some, some kind of trust um, that, that life itself will have a little bit of care for you. Mm. You know, we're very risk-averse, aren't we? Mm. On the one hand, we're busy blowing everything up. Uh, on the other hand, we're just nervous all the time and we haven't got insurance for everything. We're in a panic and we, you know, we, we're very curious. It's no wonder everybody's having mental breakdowns the way that we live. Um, but actually in life, you have to take risks and you have mm. to put yourself at risk. Um, and, you know, you can't live a narrow, closed, small life. And, you know, one of the things that I found is that you sometimes have to put yourself in places which are not safe in order to get yourself somewhere safe. You know, there are these transitions. Um, and, and that matters. It's both the journey of the soul and it's the strengthening of mm. the self. And I don't know what we're here for because I don't know if there's an afterlife, but it somehow seems really important um, to make yourself bigger, better than you are and to take those risks and those chances mm. and, and, and just try and try and get something that's, that's, that's a little mm. bit more than you've got. Mm. And working with Shakespeare forces you into that place because he has such a big mind, mm. an expansive mind, that if you decide to go in there, um, it is like being in a large forest and the unexpected mm. will happen. Mm. But is the forest still enchanted when, when you're reading Shakespeare oh, today? Always. All, all uh. forests are enchanted. Uh. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I live in a little wood. Uh, I love it. Uh, and I walk through my wood most days. You never know what you'll meet. You always expect to meet a talking bird. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or some creature. Everyone needs an animal helper, don't they? I mean, that, they know that's what you get in all of the stories and legends. You know, and the first thing that Siegfried learns to do is, is, is listen to talking birds, tell him where the treasure is. Mm. So I've always had that sense, really. I think creative, if you work creatively, you, you get around the spooky sixth sense, almost like the supernatural mm. visitation that... You know, things come together out of nowhere. You do find what you need. When you're searching mm. for something, when you've got the germ of an idea of beginning uh, and you keep faith with it, then suddenly things start to come in to feed that. Mm. Um, and that's, that's what I mean about the great trust mm. in the universe, just mm. to believe that there mm. are ideas. And if you put yourself in that place, uh, you will be in access to that. Mm. You know, I never worry about uh, running out of, of either creativity or ideas or things to say. Or thing. I mean, everything is an idea. It's exhausting. Mm. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, well, why I mean, my wife afraid? suddenly says, can you just shut up? Can uh, you stop it uh, now? <laughs> no, you don't have time to write uh, all these books. You will die. Uh, you know, and I think, well, I might have got another 30 years. But you've never had writer's block. Never. No. 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 I mean, I could just, I could, I mean, I mean, I quite like to be in one of those stories, you know, where the shoemaker's elves come out at night <laughs> and do the sewing for you. Um, because there's all, no, never. I mean, it's always uh, really just streaming out and thinning out the ideas and mm. thinking, okay, where's the mojo mm. now? Where's, mm. the, where's the real energy? Mm. Because everything takes time, and that's mm. the time of the physical body um, that is the frustration when you know you could do mm. so much, mm. but yet we do still live in mm. the clock and the calendar. Mm. Yeah. It's writing, uh, does writing begin in frustra uh, frustration for, for you? No, it begins no. in joy. In joy. Mm. Uh, partly because of the delight in discovery and uh, just finding things to... It, it, it is play all the time. You know, mm. you, you get an idea and, you, you know, it's the pleasure of thinking, oh, I hadn't thought of that. What can I do with that? Mm. Um, and then starting to read around it and think around it. And it's like having a, a completely new set of friends, but, you know, not annoying ones who make demands <laughs> on you. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's a conversation that mm. starts up and then it's following that. And, of course, you get the, you know, there's the difficulties and there's the problems and there's the thing where it won't work. Mm. Um, But but mainly, you know, you don't want the th you, you don't want the thing solved. You want to solve it. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the you know, and the touching things about you know, uh, new X-ray techniques and things for for forgeries and for paintings, you know, mm. when they show what's mm. underneath, is the thing with forgeries is that there are never any mistakes. Um, it's because people who are copying just mm. paint what's on mm. the surface, mm. but underneath the surface is everything that came before the mm. surface. Mm. Um, the scrubbing outs, the, you know, the handprints, mm. uh, the little sketches here and there, mm. um, all of those, the, the, the trace lines, you know, the, the, the almost like fossil layers that create the thing that we see, that create the surface. Um, and it's the same with anything, you know, whether it's fiction or what, you know what you've left out, mm. and there's always tons of it. Mm. And, and that is your own private record, which has little echoes and signposts uh, throughout the thing that you know and recognize and it's that those things in a way it's the, it's the things that have disappeared that you can't see anymore that yet give this the depth to mm -hmm. it um, and it's solving those problems along the way so you're not looking for the thing that's been made in the office or the factory or that can be downloaded in a kind of you know color by numbers mm -hmm. you're looking for the thing which is the wrestle with the material until you get a shape which feels inevitable. Mm. I mean, I think any, any finished creative piece of work has a feeling of inevitability to it, mm. that it couldn't have been mm. any other way. Mm. But yet, of course, it could, mm. and it was. Mm. Um, and in, inside there are the, uh, the kind of, of jostling, bursting out universes which you didn't allow to have full form, mm. but they're still mm. in there. Mm. And, and that's part of the energy that we pick up, I think, mm. when, when even across time you know, we, we meet a genuine work. Mm. It doesn't matter how old it is, because <laughs> they don't age. You just have that energy. Mm. Um, and I love that. And when I'm tired, that's what I go and plug into. Mm. You know, I need somebody else's work at that point to just boost me up again. But do you always solve the problems that occurs during writing? Yes. You do? No, yes. no projects being thrown away? Uh, oh, yeah, I throw uh, things away. Uh, if, they go, if, they, in, if it's really not working, um, look, you don't put it in the drawer. No, unless you have a magic drawer, which I do not. Mm. Because if it goes in shit, it comes out shit. Mm. Mm. There's nothing happens in that drawer 
which is going to change well. anything. Um, and there's no amount of moving it round on your screen that is going to make something which is rubbish into something which is not rubbish. <laughs> Um, it's you know it's not an editorial process. Um, you know whether something is rubbish or not rubbish is a creative process. I mean you can mend things and you can you can work on things later. But if at heart it's it's broken, mm. it, it it won't fix you know with a bit of glue. Mm. No, so burn it. I mean in in my studio I have a wood burning stove and I burn everything. I've got loads of manuscripts. I'm always burning stuff. Mm. Um, <laughs> And then I read page and I think, oh, that was that bit was all right. Yeah. I just scrub burn it yeah. because it will come back. You know, the things that you've got to work on, sometimes things might take 20 years to return, which is another great mm. bonus of having a long mm. life and having worked for a while. Because actually, uh, things that you've had to put aside do come back, but in some other form, because mm. now you're ready for them or they're ready for you. So the thing is, just just never to be anxious. We're not, we're not living in a famine and a time of lack, mm. no. Mm. Um, creativity and imagination mm. is abundant. Mm. If only we knew it. We're so scared. Mm. Um, and yet it's all there. But have you always been this confident about writing? Yes, yes, I have. Um, but that's because it, you know, it's. Oh, it, it, it was the place. Words have always felt like freedom to me, mm -hmm. um, and they've always felt like the place where I would uh, find myself and everything that I needed. Uh, you know, in in language for me um, is both both security and exploration. Mm -hmm. I trust language, mm -hmm. and if I'm troubled, I will always. I mean, I work speaking out loud anyway. I don't work silently. It's always out loud. Mm -hmm. And if I have a problem, that's why I live in the country because you can go for a walk and talk to yourself. And you don't get arrested. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm put into a white coat <laughs> you know I'll sometimes walk for hours and I'll just be talking to myself out loud like I am to you now mm. um, and I suppose in some ways you know it might you know it might be a mental health problem but it's worked. <laughs> so far it's worked mm. um, and you know I mean my partner my wife because we married last year she says you know the trouble is she said you know you are like living with a multiple she says to me <laughs> she says I never know what I'm gonna get and I said, but that's, that's wonderful for you, darling, because, you know, you won't be bored. <laughs> yeah, but there is that sense. But then I think, you know, if you're doing creative work, you have to be able to split yourself off anyway, because you are, you're like a piece of mercury. You are all of your characters and you're none of them, but they still are made out of you, just mm. as Shakespeare's mm. are made out of Shakespeare. No, it's just where that imagination mm. can go. Mm. So you know, that it, it, is, it, it is, I suppose... I mean, look, it's great that we no longer have this idea of a unitary fixed self. Mm. That's very old-fashioned, that we are a developing self, mm. which does contain multitudes. And I think that becomes very clear in creative work. And you mustn't fear it. You have to, to let that happen. Mm. But how do you stop fear it when it happens? Well, you don't. You mustn't fear it. It's very mm -hmm. simple. If you mm -hmm. don't, you can't. You can't work. Even if you do, you, you, no, you can't yeah. work in a state of fear, mm -hmm. uh, because then that just paralyzes you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I often say to people, if you know, if if they do it, just just what is it that's stopping you doing this work? And um, what does it matter if it goes wrong? What what depends on it that means it can't go wrong? Because things have to go wrong. Life is about failure and mistakes. That's not a problem. Um, and, and therefore, having that confidence to make those mistakes mm. you know, is part of it. Mm. Thinking, I can throw this away. I will throw it away. Um, and then I'll move forward to something else. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, gap of Time um, came this autumn, right? Last autumn. It in, did. In, in yeah, because it was written pretty uh, quickly. Uh, how has it been been received in in uh, other parts of the world? 
Because you got great reviews in, in, in England, didn't you? Yes, uh, yeah, yes. it's fine. I mean, as far as I know. I mean, <laughs> the trouble is I've done it now, so mm. I'm interested in talking about it, but I've never really been one to read the reviews. Um, because it's true, isn't it? I mean, the good ones make you vain and the bad ones make you miserable. What's the point? <laughs> Um, I mean, and also, what can you do? It's it's too late. <laughs> no, you've written it. You're not going to say, "Oh, after I'll do it again." Um, what can you do? And it's not about you know. It's not about. I, I take very seriously. You know what. what um, people that I respect, you know, friends of mine who are writers, I like talking to them about writing and, mm -hmm. you know, we, we discuss things. Um, and indeed, when I was stuck writing The Winter's Tale, because I was at one point, I went to my friend, I like crime writers, I love the way their minds work, because Ruth mm -hmm. Rendell was a very, very dear friend of mine. Yeah, you dedicated to her. Yeah, well, yeah. she died last year <laughs> and she died when I was writing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew she'd want me to finish it because I had to put it aside for a while because you know, I was devastated. I loved her. Mm. And you know, she took me into her house when I was 26 to write The Passion. Oh. And you know, it, was, it was a long friendship. It was 29 uh, yeah. years. Um, and there's a bit in the, in the gap of time uh, where Perdita visits her adoptive father, Shep, in the hospital. And that entire hospital scene is really me sitting by Ruth's bed. I mean, there's no, that, that is what I did. And it is that, um, watching the tubes and that, you know, the strange passage of the night uh, when you're sitting by somebody and they're not conscious um, so that that was very much in there and I thought I used to go and visit her because she couldn't speak at that actually she never regained the power of speech which is strange but we had good times still and I, I used to tell her what I was doing uh, with it and where I was stuck and all the rest of it and she sometimes sort of pull faces at me <laughs> so I thought oh I better try harder <laughs> And, and go away and be determined to finish it, and that's why it's dedicated to her. But my friend Val McDermott, you know, the crime writer, mm. I was stuck, and I said, look, here's the bit I'm stuck on. It's a mess, because Shakespeare's a mess. He just didn't care. He just left these messes mm. for me to clean up. Um, and she said, listen, she said, you're not a crime writer, so there's things you don't understand. And I said, okay. I said, what? She said, people always do things for a reason. She said, it may be a bad reason, it may be a stupid reason, it, it may be a disastrous reason, it may be a reason only clear to them, but they always do something for a reason. And she said, that's what crime writing is about. And, and she's right, you know, it was a great analysis, um, looking for that reason. And indeed, it was something I needed, it was a pivot, it was a reason um, in, in, in untangling that messy second part of Shakespeare. You know, the third part's easy, second part is a bloody swamp to get through. So she was really helpful there. So it's great to ask people you respect um, to help you with stuff. Um, but the rest, I don't know. I think, I think you've just got to get on with your work, haven't you? Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to, to wrap this uh, conversation up with, with uh, a short... Um, a hedgehog fund. Yeah, hedgehog fund. <laughs> fun. and, uh, and also a short Shakespeare test. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not doing a Shakespeare uh, test. You get to choose between two roles from some of Shakespeare's plays. Two uh, roles? Yes, and pick the one uh, that you most uh, identify with. All right. Uh, two options you have to choose. Why? But this will make me into a psychopath. It's yes. bound to. <laughs> you know, then I'll never be invited again. <laughs> Hamlet or Gertrude? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be Hamlet or Gertrude. Maybe I could be the ghost at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll be dead dad. <laughs> Richard II or Richard III? Oh, no. My, the heart's extremist hate. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, mm. 
Well, I think it'd better be the third. <laughs> oh, really? Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Rosalind or Shakin, as you like it. I think, well, Rosalind's a great character. I mean, Shakespeare usually gives his women the best lines, mm -hmm. which is a clue mm -hmm. to what Shakespeare really thinks about women. Mm -hmm. um, I know so sometimes people talk about Shakespeare's misogyny. or It's not true. Um, you just have to look at the lines and think, you know, actually, you know, look, 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 look where they go. Even in Romeo and Juliet, you know, Romeo is just a kind of boastful, stereotype-ridden, mm -hmm. cliched airhead. Um, <laughs> Who just talks about everything in superlatives. <laughs> and Juliet just has the most, you know, she's only 14 and she just has this, uh, the most beautiful language. Uh, and, you know, she's, she's so wise beyond her years. Just look at it. Don't take my word for it. Mm -hmm. Go and have a look. Um, and in fact, one of the things you can do if you're interested in reading Shakespeare sometimes is because it's meant to be performed <laughs> anyway. We were discussing this. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, Shakespeare didn't want you to read his stuff. Um, it didn't exist for you to mm -hmm. read if we'd all lived back then. He wanted you to see it on the stage. That was the whole point and purpose. It's drama. Mm. So, you know, I wouldn't bother. I really wouldn't bother unless you're interested in the text for specific reasons. I would always go and see a play that you're interested in. And then if it gets to you in some way, then go back and have a look at mm. the text. It's like opera. I would never send anybody to listen to the opera until they've been to the opera house and got, you know, got caught by the fever of it. Mm. Uh, anything that's about performance should really be about performance mm. because the study aspect, which is a private pleasure, is really secondary. Um, and we should respect that. And a lot of people have just read Shakespeare and thought, you know, I want to kill myself. Um, <laughs> and you can understand it. And I think Shakespeare would have understood it as well because he wanted you to have a good time. Mm. Um, and that doesn't really happen, sitting there generally with this gigantic book on you <laughs> and not being able to escape from under the weight of Shakespeare. Mm. So I'm not being Gertrude. <laughs> Or Lady but you Macbeth. are Rosalind. Yeah, I wouldn't mind being Rosalind. I think mm. that's a good part because mm. she has good lines. Yeah. Finally, then, King Lear or the Fool? Oh, the Fool, because poor Lear. I mean, self knowledge is not there. No. no. <laughs> really and and, and when he gets it, it's far too late, isn't uh, it? Yeah. yeah. It is. So I think I'd rather be the fool um, than, than end up with the person who loves me best in the world lying dead in my arms and suddenly realizing I've got everything wrong. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you.